Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. We're continuing with our Advent series where we're focusing upon these, uh, we're calling them songs, uh, that's a traditional term for them, but these, these bursts of praise that uh, were inspired by God's Holy Spirit and uh, enabled by those that were surrounding uh, the birth of Jesus. Today we look at, at Zechariah. Now, he was the, the father of John the Baptist. Uh, for context, uh, John had just been born, and uh, then we read this. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember the holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we would pray that your Holy Spirit who gave these words to Zechariah and who preserved them for us today would teach us and apply these words to our hearts, to our lives. Will you open up our hearts to you? Give us ears to hear you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. I always like when when Mark gives background to the hymns that we are, are singing and, and speaks of the authors, the, the time period, uh, the, the meaning of the words, and so on. To me, I'm sure for you as well, it, it, it kind of makes the, the hymn come alive even more and you take note of the words and, and you can understand a little bit more of why those words were written when they were. Well, that's exactly what we are doing 
today. Like last week when we looked at, at Mary's song, uh, the Magnificat, uh, today we're going to look at Zechariah's. And, but we need to see what the background was, what was, what was going on, what was his story uh, before he burst into uh, this song. And then we will look at the contents of uh, the song itself. Now, you can find Zechariah's story in, in Luke 1, earlier in Luke 1. It's actually in verse 5 through 25. We're not going to read that today. There's more detail than I will give you, uh, but uh, um, I encourage you to go back and, and read that detail. I'll try to kind of summarize uh, what, what was going on. His name was Zechariah, and hers, Elizabeth. It was just the two of them in their immediate family. They had hoped for children in all likelihood. It appears, as we will see, that they must have prayed for children. But they were old now. And it seemed to them, in all likelihood, that... uh, God was not going to answer that prayer. And he didn't answer it in the way that they thought he would or in the timing that they thought he would. So Zechariah was resigned to that being the case, although I'm sure sometimes down deep that was, that was hard as well. Zechariah was a priest of the people of Israel. And if you were in the line of the priesthood, uh, two times a year, you would go and serve for a week at the temple. This was his time to come and serve. And there were other priests there as well. He had been designated as the one at, at this point to represent the people uh, and to go into the temple and to burn incense for them. And he did that, and uh, there he is in there by himself. And to the right of uh, the altar, an angel appears. Never happened before for Zechariah. There's an angel standing there. Says he was afraid. And that's what we see every time an angel appears. There's fear. And then the next words of the angel usually are, don't be afraid. That's all you can hear at that moment, right? Because of the great fear they have. The angel says, don't be afraid. I've come to tell you that your prayer is being answered. Now, It doesn't say this, but if it were me, I would probably be thinking or saying, which prayer? I prayed a lot of prayers. I'm glad glad my prayer is going to be answered, but which prayer? And the one that the angel was about to answer, God was going to answer through the angel, that one would probably be way down there in terms of thinking that's the one you're going to answer now? And yet that's 
what he says. They knew people at their age didn't have babies. Even though Zechariah knew the Old Testament as a priest of God, even though he knew the account of Abram and Sarah, and that that she was old when God gave them a baby, even though he knew that, he didn't respond by saying, well, nothing is impossible with God. He responded with doubt. He basically told the angel, well, prove it. He didn't use those words. These are, those are my words, but that's basically what he was, he was saying to the angel. And that takes us to the first challenge, at least for me and uh, I hope for you as well in terms of application for, for this. Um, think about who he was. He knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He knew God's promises He had seen God work that way before. He was busy with the work of the Lord. He was in the right place where he was called to be. He was serving God's people in the temple. And yet when the test came, the test for his faith came, his response was doubt. And to me, that's just a reminder that we cannot depend upon our activity. We can't depend on proximity of being in the right place, how much we come to church, how much we, we view church, how faithful we have been even during this, uh, this situation we're in right now. We can't depend on those things. There is more to faith than just that activity or proximity. So Zechariah tells the angel, prove it. The angel Gabriel says, okay, Zechariah, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to speak a single word from now until the time the baby is born. Because I'm an angel, I'm a messenger from God, and you didn't believe me. Now, some of you men might be thinking, well, what a great excuse not to talk uh, during that time. But that's a long period of time. And that was not his response, and that was not the purpose at all. And the angel says, you're going to have a son, his name is going to be John. So, People outside the temple are waiting for Zechariah because his work in there was very, very important to them. But they're wondering, what's taking him so long? When he came out, he couldn't make a sound. Now, fast forward uh, nine months, the baby's born, still no sound out of Zechariah. Eight days later, uh, the baby is taken to be uh, circumcised uh, ceremonially, and he is named... And uh, Elizabeth says, we're going to call him John. The family objects. They're saying, well, that's not, his, that's not his father's name. And that wasn't necessarily the tradition. If you look back through the Old Testament, they didn't always 
name the firstborn after the father. We probably do that more than they did. But perhaps some of them might have been thinking, look, in this case, it's probably a good idea for you to name him after his father so everybody knows that really is his father since this is such an unusual situation. And she says, I'm going to name him John. You don't even have relatives with that name, close relatives. Uh, What are you thinking? And so they appealed to Zechariah, and he writes, his name is John. Now, I'm sure they were shocked by that, but not as shocked by what came next as by what came next, because he verbally bursts into praise at this point. Remember, he hadn't uttered a word uh, for nine months. Evidently, if you look in verse 62, it says they were signing to him, so he, he probably couldn't hear anything either. Um, and we had one of our uh, children when we were all around the dinner table at night, one of them was quieter than all the rest, and there'd be all this ruckus going. And, and when, when, but when that one started to say something, Connie would say, okay, everybody be quiet, because she, she wanted them to hear what he was going to say at that point. Well, all the more, imagine, uh, it's, been, it's been nine months. Now, we know how long that is, but just to put it in our perspective... That's like going back to when we first canceled our service here, which seems like 14 years ago. It's a long, long time not to speak or to hear. So they paid attention, and they heard words like they had never heard before. They heard a prophecy from God. Now remember, this is one that was involved with all the outward trappings of the faith. But when it came down to it, he had doubt. So now we hear from God himself. Verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. One thing I want you to notice here. is that Zechariah speaks in the past tense. Now, we saw that with Mary, and that's not at all unusual in in the Old Testament. You will see prophecies that are going to take place far in the future, and they are spoken of as if they had already happened because it was so sure that they were going to happen the way God said it was. You could speak of them as if they were past tense. And that's really what he does here as well. But what we're going to see in this prophecy is, I think, a full-orbed presentation of the gospel of why Jesus was coming. So verse 68, uh, it it says, uh, he came. Blessed uh, be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, uh, we mentioned Mary's song, the Magnificat, uh, because the first word was uh, magnify. Uh, 
Zechariah's song is often called his Benedictus, which means good word. At the end of our service, we, have, we pronounce a benediction, a bene good, a, a diction word. And so that's why it's called that. But the reason this is called the Benedictus is the very first words out of his mouth were blessed as he addressed the Lord God of Israel. Now notice what he says he did. God visited That is the doctrine of the incarnation. We focus especially, it's one of my favorite doctrines, I say that a lot, I know, about different doctrines, but uh, the incarnation, we focus especially on that uh, during Advent. Uh, The incarnation, incarne, in the flesh. That's how you can remember it. And so it is when God became flesh and that's what he means by he visited and and it's such a crucial uh, doctrine because the emphasis is that it is God coming to us other world religions what do they focus on they focus on how you can get from where you are to God here's how you work your way to him and sadly there's nothing but frustration because they never know if they're, they will get there or not. They can't know because we can't do enough. From a, from a biblical perspective, as Christians, we say, yeah, we can't do enough. The only way there's going to be salvation is not if I work my way to him, but if he visits us. And that's what the incarnation is. Now, how far did he come? Uh, C.S. Lewis, I love his, his phrase for what the incarnation was. He says that it was like a shepherd becoming a lamb in order to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the flock. You get it? So you got a flock. The shepherd's supposed to be in charge here. And there's some kind of a danger, some kind of a threat. And the shepherd actually becomes not one of the strong, stronger sheep. He becomes a lamb who then sacrifices himself to save the whole rest of the flock. That's the incarnation. It's a great way to remember it. So we see God intervening from the outside. If he didn't come there would not be salvation. So the, the Benedictus is parallel with Mary's Magnificat in that there's a lot of Old Testament references. Of course, it's a prophecy. Uh, so let's look at, at some of those. Verse 68, it says, He redeemed his people. So to use that word is also a key in terms of understanding uh, the gospel and sometimes we're so used to, to using the term uh, redeem or redemption that we forget the impact of it. it it's to be bought back, uh, purchased. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross for us. We couldn't pay for ourselves. There was no way we could pay. And so he had to. We couldn't pay because 
we are sinners. So we could never meet the standard of perfection. Jesus met that standard so he could pay for us. He could do that because he was not a sinner. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And then he goes on and uses the term the horn of salvation, verse 69, uh, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Uh, The idea of the horn of salvation is used a lot in the Old Testament. Um, And it has to do, think of an animal and with their horn. Uh, when, When they flash their horns, they're serious. They're showing their power. They're going to, to gore. They're, they're going to defend or hunt they're, or, or intimidate. It is a, a show of power. And so whenever we see uh, the, uh, Jesus called the, the horn of salvation, the idea is this is going to display a mighty act of God. And then we see, talk about fulfilled prophecy in verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zechariah is prophesying, uh, which means he's speaking under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is reminding them that this is fulfillment of previous prophecy. He's saying, look, we've been waiting For all of these promises, these things that have been prophesied before, we've been waiting for them. Generations have been waiting. And this is it. They are being fulfilled. This is what we had hoped for. And then in verse 71, he talks about some real-life help. Verse, uh, it says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, a few weeks ago, we uh, had a a Sunday where churches all over the world were praying for the persecuted church. The very fact we're praying for the persecuted church tells us that that, um, this kind of protection doesn't mean we're bulletproof. There is still danger In fact, we know that down through the centuries, Christians have been beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and many of them have been martyred. They've been killed. So how can can he talk about protection, being saved from our enemies, from the hand of uh, all who hate us? How... Can that be fulfilled? Well, I've shared with you before at various times about uh, what Chrysostom, a 5th century Christian, in his dealing with the Roman emperor at that time, uh, the the emperor uh, was going to banish him, threatened to banish him because of his faith. And Chrysostom said, Thou canst not 
Now, that's the last time I'm going to use his actual words. I'm going to kind of modernize them because words like canst and wouldst are hard to, hard to say and, and grasp the meaning. But uh, he, basically, he said, you can't banish me for this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you can't do that either, for my life is hid with God in Christ. The emperor said, I'll take away your treasures. Nope, you can't do that. For my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is already there. Finally, the emperor said, but I will drive you away from man and and you shall have no friend left. Nope, you can't do that. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, he said, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. Now he was saying basically, look, in terms of eternal hurt, in terms of you doing something to me that's going to matter eternally, you can't. And that's what it's talking about here. Yes, we can be hurt here in this world, but that doesn't mean that this is not true. And then we see in verse 72, it talks about mercy, to show the mercy promised to our fathers Uh, If there is no mercy, there is no salvation. It's mercy and grace that will prevail. That's why it's good news. We see later in verse 77, uh, speaking of uh, the role of John and so on, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. It's not about what we earn. It's about what a merciful God does for us. And then it speaks of the covenant. Uh, Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. Of course, he would talk about the covenant. Remember what was going on, why they were at the temple at this point. It was for the circumcision of their son, which it was uh, instituted in the Old Testament pertaining to the covenant. It was the sign of the covenant. We see that, that sign as being baptism in our day. And the reason is because in the Old Testament, the only sign of entrance into the covenant community was circumcision. In the New Testament, the sign of entrance into the covenant community is baptism. So of of course he would bring up the covenant at this point. This was a big day, a big day for them and for their baby. And so that's why everyone was there for that day. But the reason he would speak of the covenant especially as one who who doubted, was that the covenant reminds us again and again 
that it's not about my faithfulness to him. It's about his faithfulness to us. And that will never change for us or for our children. And of course he would point to the covenant. And then he speaks of the role of John the Baptist. Verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. What a great phrase. The sunrise shall visit us. So what was John's primary role? Well, it was essential because to a large degree, there were many people in that day that were thinking, okay, we have all these promises that we are going to be a redeemed people, that we will rule. And so what were they looking for? They were looking for a political answer. They were looking for freedom because we will no longer, when, when this is fulfilled and the Messiah comes, he will take us out from under the Roman government. We'll have a better economy. We will be in better shape. We will have real freedom. Does this sound at all familiar? Of what people are trusting in? What people are looking for? And here's the thing. I could say that every year and we could say it every year all the way back to here and there still would be people that were looking for the Messiah and a political answer. And they're always disappointed. And you will be too if you think that's where the answer is. They thought, they felt like that's what we need. And that's why, that's why churches that speak just to felt needs are not helpful. It will just bring about frustration because those things we think are our greatest needs, we always miss the mark. We, we don't get it. And so we've got to listen to what God says is our greatest need. John showed them that their greatest need was not deliverance from earthly enemies like Rome. It was to deal with their guilt to receive forgiveness from the Messiah that was right behind him. He's coming. He's right here. And I'm just preparing the way. So look at uh, the last part here because there's an application in terms of coming out of darkness. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That idea of sitting in darkness, if you've ever been in pure black darkness, you know that, that you can't move without there being danger. And the only, the only hope you have is if there's going to be some light at some point, and the safest thing to do is just to stay right where you are. And that's what it's talking about. They're, they're sitting in darkness, and they can't help themselves. 700 years before this, in Isaiah 9, it says, the people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. Remember? It's the future that is spoken of as something that's already taken place. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then it describes the light. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the scripture says that without Christ, we are just that lost. It's like we're sitting in darkness and there's nothing we can do but hope that a light will come. And then we see on the horizon that pitch black darkness becomes a dark blue and then a lighter blue then maybe a, a red or a pink and, and the sunrise comes and there is light. What is that light that he's talking about? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. That's it. That's the only hope. But he goes on to warn. Jesus does. He says this, that that light's not always going to be available. You can sit there like you're still in the dark, or you can come to the light, but there'll come a time when it will be darkness. He said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. That's the invitation today. That's the call. You can remain in darkness or you can come to the light. The light is the Lord Jesus Christ and we come to the light by trusting in him alone for our eternal life. Let's bow together. Lord, you've told us what our plight is. You've shown us we are helpless and hopeless. But then you've shown us Christ. Will you give us hearts to receive him while the light is still here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.